Welcome to FRDH Podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. One of the small joys of reaching your seventh decade is the constant free association that goes on in your mind between the present and the past. An event of the moment brings forth a sharp memory of a conversation, a face, an edited flow of images from 30, 40, or 50 years ago. You can't remember what happened yesterday, but a news image from today can summon a memory a half a century old and make it as emotionally vivid as if it had just occurred. The upheaval in American politics in recent weeks has me hyper-attuned to the present and reliving the past constantly. The paradigm in American politics has shifted, not in a good way, and what has been dominating my memory in the present is a very personal story someone told me a long time ago. It's becoming a parable I'm trying to understand, and I hope you won't mind listening while I try to unravel its meaning. I loved a Greek woman once. It was almost 40 years ago. I won't tell you her name. She's still alive and has a life, and it was always in her nature to put the past as far behind her as she could, for reasons that you will understand if I tell this story correctly. And it may take a few minutes to get to that point, so stay with me. It was the late 70s in New York, my acting days, and also a time when political action, not just for me, but for many who had been in the streets a decade earlier trying to bring an end to the Vietnam War, had given way to the need to earn a living, something I was just about doing. The radicalism of the late 60s and early 70s had always been a coalition of two forces, lifestyle radicalism and political radicalism. Those of us drawn to the arts were more likely on the lifestyle side of that coalition. I was somewhere right in the middle. I was no longer an activist, but in my style of living, my choice of career, I was still pretty radical. Through the circumstances of my birth and education, a place had been reserved for me in America's professional classes, probably as a lawyer or senior academic, and I had turned my back on that secure life. I met my Greek lover one Sunday afternoon in June at the apartment of a friend whose father was also Greek. Greek immigrants in New York City are a fairly tight-knit community. The woman had, against her will, married a Greek guy a few months earlier. The couple had been coerced by their mothers into the match. She had moved out on him after just a few weeks. Back then, I was a Grecophile in the most romantic way. I had read the complete works of Nikos Kazantzakis. I skipped bits of his epic poem, The Odyssey, a modern sequel, but frankly, so would you. His heroes, like Zorba the Greek, appealed to the romantic in me. They all follow a path of inner, often irrational compulsion. The epigram to his autobiography, Report to Greco, was inscribed in my heart. Three kinds of souls, three prayers. One, I am a bow in your hands, Lord. Draw me, lest I rot. Two, do not overdraw me, Lord. I shall break. Three, overdraw me, Lord, and who cares if I break? Overly romantic, I see that now. But then, in those days, still in my twenties, I wanted to be a hero in some way. And you cannot be a hero if you worry about whether you will be broken by the forces arrayed against you. Anyway, I had been fully briefed on the Greek woman's marital situation by the time she arrived. We weren't being set up, but my friends wanted me to know that the subject of her doomed, clannish marriage might come up. 
The conversation that afternoon flowed easily. It was about cinema, mostly. She was studying film production at NYU. But politics, Greek politics, were on the menu as well. She had been involved in action against the junta of the colonels, a dictatorship that had only ended five years earlier. As the afternoon faded, we decided to go to the movies and walked over to 42nd Street to a $2 movie house and saw Clint Eastwood in Escape from Alcatraz. Then we took a cab down to West 21st Street where she was subletting a place from a gay man who had moved to Fire Island for the summer, a perfect soon-to-be-divorced woman's bolt hole. She invited me up for a drink to carry on the talk. I'm sorry to run through all these details, but like I said at the beginning, the events of today have brought these memories back vividly. She opened a bottle of Bola Italian red wine, the height of sophistication in those days, and we kept up a conversation that had the same free associative shape as the mix of memory and events of this moment that I spoke of at the beginning of this podcast. We drank hastily. The bottle was approaching empty as we reached the time of the night when decisions get made. She made the decision for both of us as we kissed. Several hours later, soaked in sweat in spite of the air conditioner going full blast, she whispered to me, This isn't just sex, you know. No, it wasn't. It never gets fully dark in a New York apartment. Light spill from a hundred different sources creeps under shades or slices through the slats of Venetian blinds. My hands were learning and remembering the feel of her. They had noticed little things that now I could almost make out in the 3 a.m. New York light. A series of little craters around her torso. I lingered over these with my fingertips as I stroked her. In the orange and charcoal darkness, I looked at her face and saw a few marks like ritual African scars. I caressed them inquisitively. Without asking the question aloud, she gave me an answer. They have very good plastic surgeons in London. I touched one of the craters in the small of her back. They put cigarettes out on me. She then told me the story how in the last days of the colonel's military junta in Greece, in November 1973, she had been involved in demonstrations at Athens Polytechnic in an infamous act of desperate overreaction that would hasten their downfall, the colonels had sent in the tanks. My new lover had been arrested and detained, raped and tortured, and then released after a few days. She was a student, not a real underground revolutionary, and her family had connections. The regime was tottering. She and dozens like her had been horrifically abused, not because they might have information, but as a warning for the next time. In Greece, the thought was, in 1973, there will always be a next time. The conflict between the left and the right had been going on since the last years of World War II. There's no time to explain the complicated story, but simply, at war's end, Greece's northern border was the southern frontier of the Soviet bloc. Communist partisans had been important in harassing the Germans and forcing their withdrawal. They refused to disarm after the war. British and American security services fomented conflict between right-wing elements and the left, then aided and abetted the right. The civil war that took place between 1946 and 1949 was as awful as any that can be imagined. Kazantzakis wrote a novel about it, The Fratricides, 
probably his least successful. It was not possible to process in fiction so soon after the fact how the cradle of Western philosophy had descended into barbarism so quickly. After such violence, the process of healing takes generations. There are many places in the American South where the scars of the Civil War have barely knit. If you can get a great cup of coffee in Melbourne, Australia today, and believe me, you can, it is in considerable part due to the coffee culture Greek immigrants fleeing their ruined country brought with them when they went to what must have seemed like the end of the earth to find stability. The ultra-right won the Civil War, and in the decades that followed, the rightists, with a power base in the army, lurked over any vaguely liberal government when it came to power. Right-wing legislators made non-cooperation with centrist governments a doctrine. Weak center-left governments fell. Those suspected of harboring any kind of social democratic leanings were always at risk of arrest. This included the father of the Greek woman. He was a lawyer. Her memories of him were vague. Her parents had divorced when she was young. Her father had been imprisoned for his politics, but he was successful in his law practice and wealthy. My lover had attended Athens College, the top prep school in Greece, where her classmates included the children of shipping tycoons and senior politicians across the spectrum. In the upper levels of Greek society, those who had been on opposite sides in the Civil War and who had imprisoned one another in the imperfect decades of peace that followed mixed, socialized. They particularly mixed and socialized at Athens College events. When we had been together for a while, and after she had moved to a place near Tompkins Square in the East Village, my Greek lover told me a story. We were talking about fascism, how to recognize it, and, critically, how you stop it before it really puts down roots. It wasn't a didactic political discussion. It came out of the same free associative conversations we had been having since the moment we met. We might have been watching something on TV about World War II or the Holocaust, we might have been half awake after a Sunday morning of making love, sections of the New York Times thudding to the floor as we rolled around her bed. It might have been after watching the evening news, and I was in one of my Bolshevik moods. See injustice, don't negotiate, kill it, and deal with the consequences later. Anyway, in the last few weeks, this story has been flashing through my brain vividly. It's the reason I've been telling you all these cherished private memories. It's 1967. The colonels have just taken power. One of the leaders of the junta is at a party. A woman from a prominent liberal family is also attending. Her son has been in prison, is probably being tortured. The woman is speaking with the colonel. Food is being served. There's a sharp knife on the table. She could strike. Who in this gathering would expect it? She could kill him right there, not just for her son's sake, but this might end the dictatorship before it sets down roots. She does nothing. Now, what is the meaning of this tale? My lover told it to show how closely humans interact with the sources of evil in their societies, and how rarely individuals have the courage to stand up to it. Is it even right to stand up to it before the full power of darkness comes? Won't it provoke even harsher repressions? My memory of our conversation is that we wondered aloud what might have happened if someone close to Hitler had stepped up to him and plunged a knife through his heart before he really got going. 
Certainly dictators are always thinking of the possibility. Stalin thought about it incessantly, which is why so few of the original Bolsheviks outlived him. What happens most of the time, though, is we muddle on, never thinking that anything bad can ever happen to us. In stable societies, people tend to think that differences with their fellow citizens are manageable. I covered enough civil wars to know that even in our society, we live with neighbors who, in different circumstances, might slaughter us, denounce us to the authorities, or at the very least give their votes to a demagogue who runs for office on ethnic and racial grievance. At the upper levels of society, people of influence who are diametrically opposed politically, who compete underhandedly against each other in business, attend one another's weddings as if all was well. A presidential candidate asked to name a good thing about her opponent says he's got great kids because her daughter and her opponent's daughter are very good friends. I think the ambiguity of how and when we confront a paradigm shift towards authoritarianism or fascism is why that conversation has never left my mind. Reporting from Bosnia and Saddam's Iraq, it often popped up. What if one of Radovan Karadzic's old colleagues from the Kosevo Hospital, he was a psychiatrist there, had taken the risk and put a bullet through his brain or knife through his heart in late 1991 when he was just beginning his rise as a genocidal ethno-nationalist leader. Saddam was more like Stalin, I suppose. You could never have gotten to him. The situation in the United States is not at all like that in Yugoslavia as it disintegrated, or Iraq. But the election has underlined how divided the U.S. is and pointed the society towards a new way of dealing with that division. It has put America on a course that is dangerous. How to change that course before we lose our way entirely? I think that is the meaning of the parable created out of a memory of a conversation with a woman I loved nearly 40 years ago. Our relationship only lasted a year and a half. I might have married her, but I was at a point in my life where I wanted to prove to myself that I needed no one on the journey. I'd read too much Cousin Zakas. Also, it turned out she was a little less separated from her Greek husband than she initially claimed. And truth be told, under her beautiful, clever surface, the psychological damage left behind by her torture was a terrifying presence, and I didn't have the courage to take it on. Courage, to see clearly when the history you are living through veers in the wrong direction. It's hard, and the courage to think clearly what to do next is harder, but not impossible. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Thanks for listening. Please tell your friends about it and visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com. There are other stories to listen to, and you can make a donation to keep the stories coming.